Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to The Sit-Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody? Welcome in to another edition of The Sit-Down, a crime history podcast. We are, as always, presented by Barstool Sports. I'm your host, Jeff Nadu. Hope you're having a great weekend or great week, wherever you are and whenever you're listening. I'm glad you are back for another great episode. You know, this show last week I thought was great. I really enjoyed the episode we did on Chapo Guzman. I hope you enjoyed as well. Uh, Got a lot of new listeners, so welcome in. I hope you came back for week two. Um, We have no frills on this show. We come on, we break it down, we tell a story, and we get off. That's what we do here at the Sit Down. As always, thank you to everyone who always comes back week after week. It's another Wednesday. It's another sit down. And today we got a big show planned and I'm going to get into that in just a second. Do want to take care of a little housekeeping? I did hear all your complaints. Well, not really complaints, but advice. Um, You know, I enjoy the mic I have. I think it's a good mic, uh, but I think it's a mic that needs to be better. So I went up, I was at Barstool last week, went up to HQ and I spoke with some production people, got some good recs on new mics. So they, that should be here any day now. So next week, we should have a much better mic situation for the show. You know, always I felt like the mic was solid. You know, occasionally you'd get someone, but you always think it's just someone complaining or maybe it's just their computer or whatever. But what I did is I went back and listened to some of the episodes, and obviously I am hearing what you all are hearing. So we're definitely going to take care of that going forward. Um, you know, we're 73, 74 episodes into this show. It's probably time to... Uh, switch the mic up, so mics up a little bit. So should be better with echoes and that sort of thing. As far as video for this show, that is coming as well. Okay, that's something that we're going to start incorporating uh, next week, uh, and we're going to put those shows on our YouTube channel. So if you want to see the show with video going forward, that's going to be where you do that. And all you got to do, it's in the description of the video. 
or of the audio today, just go to the YouTube, just search the sit down of crime mystery podcast. As I said, I linked that description uh, in the, uh, in the, the description of this uh, podcast each week. So make sure you check that out. If you want to see video, uh, that's where you can see other videos that we do and stuff. So that's going to be starting very soon as well. So kind of cool announcements. And again, guests are coming too. That's something that I'm working on kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I always want to hear from you. Who do you want us to cover next? We always want to take our listeners into account. Although I have a very large list of people to talk about, we always appreciate recommendations. You know, a question I get posed with all the time when we're talking about the mafia is, Jeff, who do you think is the most dangerous person in the history of the mafia? Who did a number at the highest level? Who killed the most people? Who is the uh, biggest lunatic? And I always answer in a very uh, similar way. Uh, It wasn't one person. It was a group of people. And they're known as the Gemini Lounge crew, the DeMeo crew, uh, run by Gambino psychopath Roy DeMeo. And today, I want to get into who the DeMeo crew was, what they did, and ultimately some of the crimes they committed. This is a group that, according to the federal government, according to police, they probably killed in upwards of 200 or so people. Um, Now, as far as uh, kills they were credited with, if you will, uh, they killed about 54 people that we know of. And it really is a a really disturbing, um, really lineage, quite frankly. They are a group that killed everybody. It really didn't matter whether you were an informant. They thought you were an informant. uh, Maybe you knew too much innocent people. They even killed a sex offender, from what I know. So today we're going to get in to the people that these groups, this group killed. We're going to get into kind of the biographies, if you will, of some of these individuals. We did do a Roy DeMeo show already, and that's something you can check out in our uh, audio catalog. However, I think it's important really to get into the crux of ultimately how this group came together the people they killed, and ultimately what happened to all of them, because they all have different endings. Some were killed, uh, some went missing, uh, some uh, become, you know, informants, and some go to prison. And it's a fascinating story. So let's get into it. We sit back, relax, and jump right into it. Let's talk about the DeMeo crew, the mafia's most ruthless hitmen, next on the sit-down. The DeMeo crew, as far as I know, goes back to around the mid-60s. And when we talk about Roy DeMeo, at that point, Roy DeMeo, um, look, it took a while for Roy DeMeo to become a mobster, right? He was an associate for a long period of time. He was born in Brooklyn. Um, He came up really just kind of, um, you know, looking up to his brother, if you will, who was uh, a little older than he was. In 1951, his brother dies, which we, we talked about. His father then dies, at 19 for Roy, Roy has no real, really anything. He has nothing anymore. His mother, but but he has, the men in his life are gone. And he becomes an associate in the mafia. He becomes this different individual. He becomes a guy that, you know, wants to make a money, but he also believes that, you know, in the neighborhood he lives in, that's what you do. That's what you become. And he had no one to tell him, hey, you don't want to be in and, and involved with this. He starts hanging around with the Lucchese crime family, starts getting involved and meeting people in the Gambino crime family. Eventually, he meets a guy in the mid-60s called Nino Gaggi. We also have done a show on Nino Gaggi. Gaggi was a soldier. 
in the uh, Gambino crime family. And Roy starts doing stuff for him. Starts, you know, stealing things, petty crimes, starts loan sharking, things of that nature. And eventually actually starts making a good amount of money as a loan shark. He also is involved in car theft, which ends up being a very big business for the man. He meets Nino Gaggi. Gaggi takes him under his wing. And slowly but surely what the Mayo starts to do is he's making money and he needs more people under his wing. So he starts recruiting people. And around 1966, Roy DeMeo meets an individual called Chris Rosenberg. Now, at the time, Chris Rosenberg was a teenager. He's about 15 years old. Now, Rosenberg is an interesting character, right? Rosenberg is Jewish, okay? Grows up in uh, Ken Arcee, is a guy that... You really, I don't think, ever truly wanted to be Jewish. He was a guy that, you know, was kind of undersized, but he wanted to be Italian. That's the neighborhood he grew up in. All he saw around him was was theft and and the mafia and stealing cars and killing and drugs. And that's what he wanted to become. So he sought, sought out to become not only a drug dealer, but he's stealing cars by 13, selling drugs, selling weed. And he gets to know Roy DeMeo after they meet at a gas station. And Roy, like Nino Gaggi, took him under his wing. Roy takes Chris Rosenberg under his wing. And again, this is who Chris Rosenberg was. He was very much involved and entrenched and intertwined in an Italian neighborhood. And this was the kind of kid he was always going to come. He, like Roy DeMeo, didn't have many people around him to tell him, hey, that's not what you want to do. This is how you make money. Boom, boom, boom. That was that. And what these guys start doing is stealing a ton of cars, selling a ton of drugs, and ultimately becoming hitmen. Several other members of the Gemini Lounge crew would include Anthony Center, Joseph Testa, Henry Borelli, and others. Now, when we talk about the Gemini twins, they were two other hitmen for the Gemini crew. Anthony Center was also from Canarsie, okay? He grew up. His uncle was connected to the mafia, a guy, Robert Center. And, you know, he worked, you know, in the car business for a while. You know, worked in some sanitation stuff um, and started, obviously, like these other individuals, getting involved in crime. As a kid, he meets one of his dear friends who would become a dear friend to him, a kid called Joey Testa. Now, Joey Testa had a brother called Patrick who would also go into the mafia. These guys were both from a big family and also didn't have a ton of, uh, you know, father-like figures around him. Their father was a truck driver. He wasn't around much. And these guys meet after some sort of situation where a Testa sticks up for center and they become inseparable. And they would down the road be known as the Gemini crew, uh, the Gemini twins of the Gemini crew. And I want to start talking about kind of how all of this sets up and how they become this crazy hitman group. So around the early 1970s, Nino Gaggi and Roy DeMeo, who are kind of the leaders of this crew, uh, Nino obviously being, you know, a soldier and obviously en- ends up becoming a capo. Him and Roy not only are very involved with car theft, selling drugs, uh, loan sharking, extortion, all that stuff. Also, they start getting involved with porn. Okay, which is something that the mob was very involved with in the 70s. If you know anything about New York and Times Square, it was a den of iniquity. It was a place where 
it's way different than it is now. Back then, if you've ever seen um, The Deuce on HBO, it tells a very good, it paints a very good picture of what Times Square was back then. It was this place where it was all sex shops, porn stores, um, strip clubs, um, theaters, things of that nature. And porn was obviously a huge seller because it didn't matter what your kink was or what you were into. You could go down to Times Square and you could get uh, homosexual stuff. You could get uh, orgies. You could get uh, men and women. You could get whatever you wanted. That was the place you went. And people like Roy DeMeo and Nino Gaggi knew that. And like I said, all the different families are involved. The Gambino crime family had a ton of involvement. If you know anything about Robert DiBernardo, DB, one of John Gotti's guys, uh, and people, uh, they would become connected. And he would ultimately die under John Gotti's leadership. He was very involved with porn. Um, you know, Carlo Gambino, uh, one of his biggest businesses was gay gay nightclubs. Uh, he owned a nightclub and had involvement in a nightclub called the Haymarket. Um, there was a guy, Eddie DeCurtis, in the Gambino crowd, like very big in porn. Uh, Matty the Horse, Ina Yellow, who uh, is actually featured in the deuce. He was big down at Times Square. Michael Zaffirano, Bonanno Crime Family. All these guys had people. All these families had people in Times Square. Now, ultimately in 1973, Nino Gaggi and Roy DeMeo start trying to shake down a guy called Paul Rothenberg. Rothenberg was a partner in a company called Arrow Film Labs. And Arrow Films was a huge distributor of 8mm hardcore porn, right? So, Back then, it wasn't like now where you just go on the internet and find it. You had to grab these 8mm tapes in the 70s, and and they were big business. You could make good money off those tapes. Um, And these two go in, and they say to Rothberg, look, some of your business is now ours. You're going to kick up to us, and if you don't like it, you're going to have to get over it. Paul Rothenberg ultimately gets raided by the FBI, Gaggi and DeMeo are worried because they know he has a card he can now play. He could say, hey, uh, the mafia came to see me um, and, you know, I-, I could tell you things about them, blah, 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 blah. That's what they thought. So Gaggi and DeMeo get the idea, hey, you know what? Let's just whack this guy. This would be the first known murder committed by members of the DeMeo group or the Gemini Lounge crew. Ultimately, what happens is they kidnap Mr. Rothenberg. Uh, and kill him and dump his body in Long Island. He was beaten and shot, and that was that. That would happen on July 29th, 1973. So, you know, in the mafia, it is a world of deceit. It is a world of killing. It is a world of morbidity. And this is obviously probably not the first time Roy DeMeyer himself killed, but this is the first we know of. It wouldn't take long before other members in the crew start killing as well. These guys all come together. They're working under one flag, the Gaggi DeMeo flag. So Center, Testa, Borelli, all these guys start getting involved. In 1975, as part of a car ring, when you're stealing cars, obviously, you're pulling them off. You got to get rid of them somehow. So ultimately, they would find the DeMeo crew. They'd find a guy called Andre Katz. He was a young 20-something that had a garage and a car dealership with his father in Brooklyn. And this Katz guy starts buying cars off them, blah, 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 blah. Ultimately, they have some sort of beef. They worry about him. And in June of 75, it's time for him to be killed. Um 
they he ends up going to the police. So Chris Rosenberg, they shoot him in the face, this guy Katz. They then repeatedly stab Katz with a butcher knife and sever his head off and put it in a garbage compactor. Now, this was a really messy murder for them because this is where they kind of perfect the Gemini method. This was a messy murder. They ultimately kill the guy. They chop him up and they displace his body all around this food market in Queens. Someone finds a leg in the lawn. Um, someone finds a part of the body behind the grocery store. It was really messy death. And down the road, Joey Test and Henry Borelli were actually arrested on this case, but they beat the rap when a witness was killed, which made sense. But this is when they create the Gemini method because they were killing so much. They need a way uh, to make it not as messy as it was. Because, look, when you're killing people at the level that they ultimately were, you can't constantly be throwing body parts all over the place. You, you got to have a, a method as to how you're going to do things and how you're going to make it work. So they create this thing called the Gemini method, and they used a place called the Gemini Lounge. It was a nightclub bar in Brooklyn, right in the neighborhood that Roy was from. And they create this procedure of rules that when you kill somebody, generally, this is going to be how it works. Now, a victim will be lured through the side door of the lounge. Now, think of it like this. The lounge faces like a corner. So there are multiple. It's almost like a triangle shape. There are two side entrances and one front entrance. They would use the side entrance. The individual would be welcomed in and walk in the apartment. There would be some sort of executioner there. He would have a gun in his hand and a towel. A victim will be shot in the side of the head. And quickly, the executioner would cup the back of his head around the skull, soaking up all the blood, which obviously would come out of the bullet hole. Now, as soon as this was done, another member that was there would take out a large knife and stab the victim in the heart to further stab the flow of blood, obviously, from the original wound that you would have in your head. Once the victim was dead, any bleeding was under control. The crew members would drag the body into a nearby bathroom after stripping it of any and all clothing, right? So you throw it in the bathtub, drain it of all the blood, and then you start dismembering the victim. Okay, so obviously, when you're dismembering somebody, you're cutting their head off from the neck, right? You then cut off the arms and legs, place everything in trash bags, and then they would take it to a dump in Brooklyn and get rid of it. Because again, the smell will not come up in a dump. Everybody smell. there's tons of different smells. Nothing would ever be found. It was very effective, right? This was the way, if you're going to do something, and remember what we can say about the Gemini Lounge group. They were vicious, they were brutal, uh, but they were a group that came up with very simple rules that were very effective for a pretty long time. Let's just be honest with ourselves. In 1976, they would also start killing other gangsters. And this would also, down the road, really present problems for them because they really kind of didn't believe in rules. And there's a simple rule in the mafia. If you kill a made man, you obviously need a okay, you need um, approval. Now, that hasn't always been followed. However, it's been done and it's not good when you do it. In May of 1976, 
Roy DeMeo gets into a beef with a Lucchese gangster called Joseph Bracini. They called him Joe Bikini. This guy had a car dealership. He was also involved in porn down in Manhattan. He was a good earner, made a lot of money. Like I said, had a car dealership at Woodside, Queens. Him and Roy DeMeo get into a physical altercation. And from what I understand, Roy DeMeo lost the fight. We'll just say that. Now, Roy initially said, I'm good. It's fine. No big deal. Boom, boom, boom. That was that, though. As we know, you're not going to beat up Roy DeMeo and just get away with it. Roy goes to Gadji and says, hey, look, we're not going to get approved for this. We need to make this look like a robbery. Okay, so let's send somebody, make it look bad. Let's get rid of this fuck. We obviously can't kill him out in the street. We need to make this look different. So that's what they do. They send Henry Borelli, one of their hitmen, to the dealership in Woodside, Queens. Ultimately, he would tie people up, make it look like a robbery, um, and kill Burkini. Now, Burkini ultimately would be found. Um, they didn't do the Gemini uh, method to him. It wasn't necessarily something that they could just invite him to do. Uh, he would ultimately be buried and, and his family would find out, which was obviously good for them. But this is the kind of vicious people these guys were. And, and they, the thing about them is they killed so many different people. It, it wasn't just, hey, um, you know, one or two because you were a rat. They were killing people for all sorts of different things. Um, and, you know, again, Roy DeMeo couldn't stand that, you know, they, he had got in a fight, he lost a fair one, and that was that. And the same thing would happen in 1976. Nino Gaggi would have a man called Vincent Governara killed. A decade earlier, Governara had beaten him up in a street fight and broke his nose. This governor guy was a boxer and Gaji got into a fight with him and broke his nose. Now for years, Nino Gaji had this revenge on his mind. At one point they tried to uh, rig his car with a bomb. It didn't work. Um, and, you know, then ultimately they would continue to try to do that. They'd blow him up with a bomb. He'd die a week later after succumbing from the injuries in the bomb. This was just kind of the guys they were. They could not stand uh, being shown up. They were just going to say, you know what? Fuck these guys. We're going to just kill them. Now, one of the murders they would commit in 1976 was a murder that you have to wonder how the hell it happened and how dumb the individual that did what he did did. In 1976, Nino Gaji's making a lot of money. He's a big timer in the Gambino family. He gets a vacation home near Miami in a place called Hallandale Beach, Florida. He needs some electrical work done. He hires this guy, this contractor called George Byram. Byram starts doing some work. Gaji's not around. He realizes, hey, look, maybe this guy's got some money. I know a robbery crew. I can give them this info. They'll come case the house and we can all split the spoils. Obviously, not a good idea to rob anybody, but definitely not a good idea to rob Nino Gaggi's home. Nino Gaggi would find out and ultimately would figure out that Byron was the guy that provided the info. So he dispatches DeMeo down to Florida to get rid of this fucking scam artist. He goes to the hotel, finds this individual, shoots him multiple times, and then takes the body into the hotel room shower to get rid of it and chop it up. The problem is Roy DeMeo gets spooked. There's some contract contractor work going on and he leaves the hotel. 
ultimately the hotel maid would find the body. And if you know anything about some of the, the particulars after the fact, he would actually be uh, identified uh, as being in the hotel at some point. A front desk clerk who checked a guest in later would actually identify DeMeo as someone who checked in and that Gaji was actually also there with him. So this was one of those personal murders that Gaji really took uh, to heart and he wanted he wanted the guy dead. And you can't blame him, quite honestly. In 1977, Joey Testa and Anthony the Gemini twins, would kill an individual called Jerome Hoffaker. They would shoot him in front of his girlfriend's home after he had gotten in a fight with another brother of Joey Testa called Dennis. Now, one other person would actually witness this shooting, but did not cooperate due to how afraid they were. This is, again, another situation where they're just saying, you know what, we're not going to just fight these people. We're not going to just uh, forget about it. We're going to do what we have to do because we're this crew and we cannot be shown up. We cannot be soft. We cannot be anything. That's the kind of people these guys were. Another situation, Patrick Presenzano, 1978. Allegedly, Mr. Presenzano would steal jewelry from somebody that Roy DeMeo was close to. The mayor says to the guy, hey, you know what? You give the jewelry back, everything's good, no problems. But he didn't give it back. Roy DeMeo would personally shoot Mr. Presenzano and slit his throat from ear to ear. Now, he was found in the back of a car in Brooklyn. And in a weird way, DeMeo started trying to, if he didn't use the Gemini method, what he started to do was he would... When he kills someone, he would make it look like something else. I mentioned the robbery he tried to pull off and make it look like a robbery. In this case, it was said that according to police, Mr. Presenzano's underwear was pulled down in an attempt to make it look like it was some sort of sexually related crime, which is pretty interesting. Now, again, whether that drew off the scent, I'm sure it did. Now, if you know anything about Patrick Presenzano, it was said that he was a associate of the Genovese crime family. And his body was found at the corner of Avenue X and Boynton Place in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Now, what we know about Presenzano also was he was a large-scale dope dealer. Okay, So we don't exactly know why he was killed. Do I think it was just over jewelry? Probably not. Now, around this time, as we know, Nino Gaggi's getting a promotion, if you will. Uh, by this point, he becomes a big-timer. Um, he had become a huge loan shark. He was making tons of money. Uh, in 1976, Carlo Gambino dies. Obviously, Paul Castellano becomes the boss of the Gambino crime family. Gaggi's made captain, which is a big thing because now he has a promotion. He kicks right up to the upper echelon of the family. He's a very high-profile individual. And Gaggi was very close to Paul Castellano. He was able to have that conduit. And he was allowed to operate and do things that, you know, maybe wouldn't have been tolerated. But remember, this crew, the DeMeo group that reported up to Gaggi, all these guys made tons and tons of money. So it really didn't matter that they may have killed an innocent person occasionally. Mr. Castellano was forgiving it because they made a lot of money for Castellano. That was the thing with Castellano. If you gave him an envelope, things were good. Now, the problem that 
Roy DeMeo has is he also wants a promotion. He wants to be a made man. He's still an associate at this point. But there was some concern from Castellano. He didn't want him in the family. But in 1977, he ultimately makes him a made man, which becomes big. You know, DeMeo handles a lot of things involving the Westies and taking care of some murders with that whole thing. Mickey Spillane, Ruby Stein, those things. Um, and look, Castellano couldn't overlook that at that point. He needed to give DeMeo a bump up. He deserved it. Now, in May of 1978, the Gemini Lounge crew ends up committing a murder that really, when we look back on the 50 plus murders they were known to have committed. Now, again, we they may have committed up to 200. This is the one murder that we can look back and say, you know what? Good. We're glad they killed that person. Around May of 1978, the crew allegedly killed an individual called Michael DiCarlo. Now, DiCarlo was a gym owner in Mill Basin, Brooklyn. He was a bodybuilder, um, you know, always had classes for kids and people and uh, was also said to be uh, involved with other things, whether it was porn and things of that nature. Um, at some point, it was put out there by the Lucchese crime family that Mr. DiCarlo, Mikey Muscles, as they called him, had molested a young child, most notably a boy. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Now, the Lucchese's also mentioned that it may have been a family member of someone connected to the family. Now, obviously, Roy had a lot of connections. He knew a lot of people. They farmed the contract out to the Gemini crew. They would grab the Carlo and they did a real number on the Carlo. And we have to admit, he likely deserved it. This was a scumbag child molester that probably did what he, they said he did. Now, Roy DeMeo would tell other crew members that he was blown away at how Anthony Center used a hammer on the Carlo and that the Carlo was so tough, though, he wouldn't die. And he would talk about Center beating him in the head with a hammer multiple times. Now, another person involved with this crew was a cousin of Roy DeMeo called Joe Dracula, Guglielmo. And he also was involved with this crime. There were several people, Center, DeMeo, Don Montiglio, Joe Dracula. They were all involved. Roy would also say he marveled how Joe Dracula jammed a broomstick up a part of Mikey Muscles. We don't need to go into specifics of what we're talking about here. 
Now, Joe Dracula also lived in the apartment above the Gemini Lounge. So uh, in the morbid fashion, they would cut a body up and go up to have a nap. Now, according to what we know, Mr. DiCarlo was disposed of, cut up, dismembered, and thrown in the fountain after he dumped. We have to admit, when we look back on all the murders that these guys committed, Mr. DiCarlo should have died. He should have been killed, and he should have died the way he was killed. It's pretty simple. In 1977, the group would kill a man called John Quinn. Now, John Quinn was inching in, supposedly, on territory uh, belonging to DeMeo and the Gambino crime family. He would be shot in the back of the head and tied up in his car. His girlfriend, allegedly Sherry Golden, was also found days later in Brooklyn, shot in the head as well in the same matter. Now, as I said, Paul Castellano was always willing to forgive this stuff, even though he wasn't happy that a 19-year-old girl was killed, who may or may not have been connected to this. But when you know too much and you're connected to the wrong people, the DeMeo crew believed, we're just going to get rid of them. And Castellano forgave it because Castellano was making a lot of money off these guys. Now, also one of the things that the Gemini Lounge crew was doing was selling drugs. And one of the main people selling drugs in the crew was young Chris Rosenberg, the Jew who started slotting into this crew and becoming uh, a, a killer as well. He also had a big drug business, which was another moneymaker for the family. On November 30th, 1978, an individual called Gary Gardine was fronted several pounds of marijuana by Rosenberg. So he gave him four pounds, said, hey, here you go. Get rid of it. Bring the money back to me. This is what you owe me. Mr. Gardine didn't pay, which is a ridiculous thing to do. Um, I never understood that being fronted amount of drugs. Obviously, you're greedy and you just think that the people you're dealing with are, are nobodies. But in the end, when you're selling and fronting pounds of marijuana, we'd have to probably imagine that in the streets you could figure out that someone is probably um, a, a crazy uh, individual and you probably shouldn't uh, patch them, if you will. Now, Rosenberg wanted to make a statement here. According to what I understand, um, he would be shot, stuffed in the trunk of a car, and the car was set on fire. And that was done right in the middle of the street. Because Chris Rosenberg knew that, hey, I'm willing to kill you. And he wanted people to know, hey, I'm willing to kill you. And if you fuck me, this is what happens to you. And this, again, this is a well-rounded killing crew. They will kill you any way possible. They'll show you or they won't show you. And they'll just get rid of you. And they were incredibly feared. Tons and tons of people would begin to turn up dead. Multiple people at a time. Now, by the time 1979, 1980 come, this crew is starting to unravel. At this point, Chris Rosenberg is not only moving marijuana, he's moving cocaine. And Mr. Rosenberg becomes involved with a Cuban drug lord called El Negro. They get him 12 kilos. He starts moving it around. And he instead, Rosenberg, of you know being fronted drugs and paying him like he killed someone for, he does the same thing. Rosenberg gets greedy, just kills all the connects and steals all the cocaine. 
Now, this was a really big issue for Rosenberg and DeMeo because DeMeo was the guy that pretty much vouched for anything that Rosenberg did. DeMeo knew the rules. And in the Gambino crime family, when you sell drugs, um, you are being marked for death. That was a rule. Deal and die. And Rosenberg was doing a lot of shit he shouldn't be doing. So not only did he set up issues for himself with the Gambino crime family, but now he had Cuban drug lords that wanted him fucking dead. In one situation, he would kill four people at one time, including two unnamed individuals, a man called William Serrano and another individual called Charles Padnick. Now, also, it was said that Anthony Santa and Joey Testa were also there. Killing four people at one time, chaos would ensue. And Rosenberg was a dead man walking. It's that simple. And the problem was, again, Roy DeMeo was in the line of fire. And by this point, the problem that Roy DeMeo had, and I've read in a terrific book called For the Sins of My Father by Roy DeMeo's son, Albert, he would talk about in the late 70s the kind of individual that Roy, Roy was, his father. After this stunk by Chris Rosenberg. DeMeo is absolutely paranoid. He doesn't leave his house for days on end. He's doing a lot of cocaine, according to Albert. He's just paranoid, completely paranoid, and going off half-cocked, doing things he shouldn't do. Uh, and sadly, this is the worst murder that Roy DeMeo and this group would commit. It would happen in 1979. That day... There was an individual called Dominic Ragucci. Now, I want to give you a little background on who Dom Ragucci is. Dominic Ragucci was 19 years old. He was a college student. He was a good-looking kid that just was trying to create a life for himself. And during college, he decided that he was going to take up a job as a door-to-door salesman um, selling vacuum cleaners. So he gets this plot of area that he has to go to each day and he knocks on the door and he tries to sell you something a decent job for a young kid trying to make some money that day he is given a territory that includes a home belonging to Roy DeMeo now inside the home at this point was Joe Dracula Roy's cousin and Roy Raguchi shows up knocks on the door And out of pure paranoia, DeMeo thinks and looks at the kid and thinks he's a hitman. Now, DeMeo, as the kid walks back to his car, comes barreling out of the house with his cousin trying to shoot the kid. The kid gets in his car and drives away. But then DeMeo and Dracula catch up to him and execute him in broad daylight. Again. This was an individual that was just selling vacuum cleaners, 19 years old, completely innocent. But again, the paranoia, the behavior of Chris Rosenberg on dealing with Cuban drug lords, the cocaine use that he had. Roy DeMeo was out of control. And I've talked about this time and time again on this show. When you start becoming out of control for the mafia, it's very simple. You get killed. You're not going to go off half-cocked and do what you want to do and make a mockery of what we do here. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Eventually, you become a loose end, and we got to deal with you. Now, the next murder that would be committed by the Gemini Lounge crew would be from one of their own. 
Chris Rosenberg had to die. This whole crisis that was set up by the Cuban stuff, it all started and became a domino effect because of his behavior, his scumbag behavior. Patching drug dealers and then everybody else gets killed. Um, you know, an innocent person died because of it. Nino Gaggi says, you got to kill Rosenberg. I know it's not going to be easy for you. I know you look at him like a son, Roy, but you got to kill him. Now, these guys would have a weekly crew meeting. And the meeting that week would be held at an apartment. Rosenberg would walk in and he'd be completely destroyed by a machine gun fired by Henry Borelli. Now, one thing the Cubans who by this point had gotten connected with the mayor, the one thing they wanted was they wanted the whole fucking world to know that Chris Rogersberg was dead. They wanted to make the newspaper. And that's what happened. There's a newspaper article with his body being shot up in the middle of the street. And that ended that whole thing. And that was the big thing. It had to end. Chris Rosenberg, from the beginning, was a lunatic. And his behavior marked his death warrant. It's that simple. This was a killing that had to happen. It was necessary. And as we've talked about before on this show, there are no friends in the mafia. You can have a friend for a long time, but eventually um, you're going to have to kill your friends. And that's been seen in many different cases. There are no friends in that life. Now, up until the early 80s, and really up until 83-ish, the DeMeo crew would kill others as well. Uh, they would kill a cooperating witness called James Bennett, uh, who was going to testify against a DeMeo associate. He'd be shot multiple times in the head by Gemini twins, Joseph Testa and Anthony Center. Another individual would be killed on uh, December 4th, 1981, a man called Joseph Vigiano. Vigiano, he was in debt, didn't pay. He was involved with porn. Vigiano will be shot by Roy and then will be chopped up and thrown in the Fountain Avenue dump. Now, they would also compound the murder of Joseph Vigiano 17 days later. An individual would come looking for Joe Vigiano called Al Vigiano. He was the father of Joe. Gemini crew said, well, he probably knows what happened. Let's just kill him. He disappeared two weeks earlier or two weeks later. Also, his brother, Paul Vigiano, would come with his father that day. The brother would say Roy was the guy that did it. He'd be shot as well. So they killed all three people. And that's what they did. They would cover their tracks by killing people that knew about what happened. But in January of 1983, the end of the DeMeo crew would kind of start. And I think in the end, Paul Castellano realized that, you know, DeMeo was another loose end. By this point, he was out of control. A lot of some of the problems that happened really kind of were created because of him. And he had worried at one point, Castellano, that Roy DeMeo would crack and become a rat at some point. He goes to the crew and says, look, get rid of him. 
He's got to go. On January 10th, 1983, they would lure him to a meeting. Would be shot multiple times in the head, chest, and arms. And he'd be taken to a boat club in Brooklyn, where he would be found 10 days later in the back of a trunk. Now, interestingly enough, he'd be placed under a chandelier. Now, why he was placed under a chandelier in the trunk, I don't know. Uh, however, he'd be killed by his own people, Nino Gaggi, Joey Testa, and Anthony Center. Again, there are no friends in the business. Eventually, in the mafia, if you do too much, you get a bullet in the head by your friends. That's how you're killed. Now, things would start to kind of figure themselves out. By 1980, certain associates in the DeMeo crew start flipping, and that leads them to Gadji. In fact, one of the people that was involved in this crew was a person called Dominic Montiglio. Montiglio was the nephew of Nino Gadji. Gadji had involved him in the life in his teens. He gets arrested. Montiglio starts cooperating and basically tells the FBI, look, I give you my uncle. I give you them all. And that was that. That would lead to on February 25th, 1984, Gadji gets indicted. Racketeering, murder, all sorts of stuff. And Castellano would ultimately get pinched about a month later. And in 1986, Gadji would be convicted of conspiracy to sell cars and was sentenced to five years. He would then get hit with another trial that would focus on his 25 murders allegedly committed by him and other members of the crew. So he was effectively, by that point, pretty old. I mean, in the mid-80s, he was you know, 60s, and he had health problems. That was the problem. In April of 1988, Mr. Gaji would die of a heart attack. He would actually tell a prison guard at one point that he did have chest pain, but they didn't do anything about it. And his wife would actually um, sue the prison after his death for negligence, but... Um, and it would actually help in creating better conditions for prisoners. But Anino Gaji would die in prison in 1988. A fitting ending for uh, a complete scumbag, quite honestly. I want to get to ultimately what happened to the rest of this crew. Obviously, we know, as I just talked about, Gaji was dead. DeMeo was dead. Rosenberg was dead. What happened to the other members of this crew? I want to talk a little bit about the Gemini twins because they would actually continue to commit crimes uh, in different crews. Um, by the mid-80s, uh, 1983, really into 1985 and after, the group we call the Gemini twins would actually align with the Lucchese crime family. They would start committing murders for a person called Anthony Casso. We've done a video. We've done a show on him. Uh, a real lunatic. If you know anything about Anthony Casso, he killed a lot of people as well, had a lot of people killed. They knew how much of a rich man he was. He was kind of their Roy DeMeo Nino Gadji. They start committing crimes for him. And at that point in the mid-80s, and if you know anything about a guy, Michael Franzese, he talks about this gas tax scheme that he was involved with. The original creator of the gas tax scheme was actually a Russian guy in Brighton Beach called Merit Balagula. He came up with this idea. 
at one point during when they're making all this money, whether it's Frenzies, Castle, all these people involved with the, the, the gas tax scheme, a person called Vladimir Reznikov tries to shake Balagula down. He was another Russian, a real lunatic. He comes in and says, listen, you're going to cut me into this gas tax scheme or fucking else. Balagula goes to Casso and Christy Tikfunari, who was a higher up in the Lucchese family. And they basically get to a point where they say, look, we got to kill this Reznikov. After he also threatens to kill Balagula and hurts him and stuff. So this was the first kill that the Gemini twins would do. Uh, in Brooklyn, they would kill Reznikov in front of a club June 13th, 1986. They'd ultimately be involved in several other murders um, until they would actually be arrested uh, in uh, the 80s as well. So they would commit a few, nothing crazy, but they would commit a couple of more. In the late 80s, they would be indicted on murder charges and other things. Uh, and that would be that for them. Uh, in September of 1989, Anthony Center and Joseph Testa were both convicted on all counts and sentenced to life imprisonment. Currently, Joseph Testa is 67 years old, and he's being housed at FCI Terminal Island in California. Anthony Center, who is also currently 67 years old, is continuing to serve his life sentence at USP Allenwood in Pennsylvania. Now, several people have commented to me that at some point they're going to get out of prison. It's not going to happen. Both of these individuals will die the death they deserve in prison, probably choking on their own blood. These were killers. These were violent psychopaths who killed innocent people for no reason. They should die in prison. It's pretty simple. One of the other crew members, Henry Borelli, would also get a life sentence. He is 74 years old and at FCI Gilmer. Interestingly enough, he didn't necessarily get a life sentence, though. His projected release date is October of 2083, where he would be 134 years old. Effectively, a life sentence. All three of these individuals will die in a federal prison. Now, I do want to talk about one other person in this conspiracy, Joe Dracula. Weirdly enough, the cousin of Roy DeMeo, from what we know, is possibly the only person that did not do prison time for his crimes. This was a guy that killed people as well. Now, we don't exactly know what exactly happened to him, but during the time where, you know, all this stuff goes down, he vanishes. He just pops up out of thin air and goes away. According to Albert DeMeo, the son of Roy DeMeo, he would say in his book years later that he, quote, gave him a ride to the airport. He didn't say where he was going. He just dipped out, and that was that. Now, we could say that possibly maybe he was killed. He could still be out there. We don't exactly know. There's also been reports that the Gemini twins killed him. Maybe he's under a name in the witness protection program after providing info. I don't know. It's very interesting, though. 
did he actually get away? I don't think. I think he was probably killed by the Gemini crew because they thought he was a rat. But is it, it is interesting. Now, there is a person okay, that I have seen uh, on YouTube that claims that Joe Dracula was sent to Italy. I, I can't validate that, nor will I validate that or tell you where you can find it because I don't put any stamp on it. You always have to wonder, some of these people on YouTube, are they actually people? Now, I do know all these people for the most part, and I do try to give my opinion. I don't necessarily believe that this individual is speaking the truth, but it is interesting to think about nonetheless. As I said, the government would credit the Gemini crew with killing 54 different people, though it is possible that they probably killed 150, 200 people probably. We'll never actually know. Now, a lot of people say to me, what about Murder, Inc. Uh, as the most violent crew? I think it's definitely a great comparison. Um, to me, though, I, when it comes to violent sociopaths um, that truly transcended the mafia as far as killing people, I don't know. I mean, I think both are, are very lethal. Now, obviously, if you know anything about Murder, Inc., I mean, they, you know, between like a 12-year period, said to have killed you know, 500-plus people. Now, we don't actually know. Um, I think we're really just kind of grass trials when we're comparing them, though. They're both very lethal people. They're both very lethal crews. Uh, and they're both very interesting to talk about. The Gemini Lounge crew, though, perfected murder, basically. Um, they had a method. They had a modus of operandi and how they did things. Uh, and they were cowboys in every sense of the word. They killed you in the front. Of, front they killed you behind the scenes. And they got rid of you. But sometimes they had to make a point. But in the end, a lot of their own things that happened were due to just being too big a lunatic. Stuff with Chris Rosenberg, Royden Mayo's cocaine use, just paranoia. That said, though, very interesting and very lethal. I do want to end this show, though, talking about one thing that I do want to validate or not validate. There's an individual that I get asked about all the time, Richard Kuklinski. We all have heard of Richard Kuklinski. He's a serial killer that just killed people. He's a ra raving lunatic. Upon his conviction and sentence of life imprisonment, he started doing um, interviews with a psychiatrist called Park Dietz. And at one point in the early 2000s, HBO would release documentaries called the Iceman Tapes. And in those tapes, Mr. Kuklinski would talk about various ways that he would kill people, including crossbows, ice picks, bombs, cyanide, all sorts of different things. And at one point, he would also say that he was a contract killer for the mafia, including the fact that he killed people on behalf of Roy DeMeo. He also said he killed Carmen Galanti, Paul Castellano, and other people. Now, it, it must be made clear. There is no evidence or reason to believe that Kuklinski even knew Roy DeMeo, let alone killed for him. And there's absolutely no chance that he killed anybody connected to the mafia. We obviously know Paul Castellano was killed by four members of the Gambino crime family. We also know that Carmen Galanti in 1979 was killed by members of the Bonanno crime family. We also know that through informants and other people involved that Roy DeMeo 
was actually not connected to the hit on the guy that killed John Gotti's son by accident, but that that was actually members of the Gambino crime family as well. The problem that we have here is certain authors have stuck up for this lunatic Kuklinski. He's a raving, babbling idiot, psychopath who created things in his head and tried to get love from it. He's a pathological liar who never killed anybody for the mafia. In fact, he didn't even know Roy DeMeo. It never happened, and it's not true. And that can be backed up by everyone, even you know people like Jerry Capisci have talked about that. Richard Kuklinski was not a mafia hitman. He didn't kill anyone for the mafia. All he was was a pathological, lying, serial killer who created these illusions in his head and knew that if he told the psychiatrist on an HBO documentary, he would look cool and he would look big time. Uh, was he a lunatic? Yes. Will I do a show on some of his behavior at some point? Yes. Did he kill people for the mafia? No, he didn't. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. Another great episode of the Sit Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports is in the books, as I said, next week. Video will be here. We'll put all that stuff on YouTube. So make sure if you haven't, you go check out our YouTube channel. I do have the link in the description of this podcast. But if you want a simple way, just go to YouTube, type in the Sit Down, a Crime Mystery Podcast, and make sure you subscribe, check out our videos, hit the like button. I also want to let you know, uh, please go follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at Sit Down Crime Pod, at Sit Down Crime Pod. Uh, most of you are already following us, but if you haven't, at Sit Down Crime Pod. Uh, if you need me, you know where to find me. Uh, that can be where you can find me. You can also check out all my blogs at barstoolsports.com. As always, if you ever have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me through email. Uh, we've got another great show planned next week, as always. So make sure you join us. I am Jeff Nadu. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week here on The City. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.